Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Good to have you. We're so grateful that you are here. If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected with uh, the community here at River City, and we would love to do that, fill out a connection card, just come find anyone. We'd really enjoy that. So uh, we are on the front end of a series this fall, taking a look at the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And what we've been seeing so far is that Genesis is so foundational to our faith, not because it shows us the, the specifics about the how of creation, because, but because it reveals to us the who of creation and the why of creation. It reveals to us who God is, and it shows us what he is like But we don't just find out about who God is in Genesis 1 and 2 especially. We we find who we are because at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28 through 28, it says, we see that humanity is made in the image of God. Which means that we both possess the capacity to know God and and to reflect his nature and that we are called and commissioned as sent as his image bearing representatives to relate to the rest of creation on his behalf as his representatives. And so Genesis 1, what we've seen is that Genesis 1 makes a really big deal out of humanity being made in the image of God. We talked about how the the way that the text is written is kind of like the stop sign with the LED flashing lights around it. It's like, do not miss this. It's really, really important. And so uh, in order to uh, acknowledge that, we actually spent the last four weeks talking about what it means to the meaning and the implications of what it means to be God's image-bearing representatives. And what we saw is that the reason why Genesis makes such a big deal out of being image-bearers of God, out of humanity being image-bearers of God, is because our image-bearing of God has everything to do with our identity and our purpose. You see, our, our being image-bearers of God means that tells us who we are. It tells us why we are here. Being made in the image of God tells us who we really are and it says that we're God's valued and commissioned image-bearing representatives. And what we saw is that that is an incredibly life-giving identity. It's an identity that can never, ever get taken away. It's an identity that is not based on ability or disability. It's not based on performance or lack of performance. It's not based on what you accomplish or what you do not accomplish. It has everything to do with who you are. It is part of your nature. You are an image bearer of God, every person, everywhere, in every time, in every place, in every language, in every culture, everyone, everywhere is made in the image of God. That is, that is like bedrock truth that we need to understand. And that's why everyone has value and dignity and worth. Every human, ever, everywhere, all the time, has value and dignity and worth. Because they're made in the image of a creator who has, who has unmeasurable value and dignity and worth. We saw as well that the, our identity as image bearers of God, that, that gives us meaning and purpose in life. Because our purpose then is to represent the one whose image that we bear. And we talked about how that is an incredibly life-giving purpose. Because instead of finding your purpose in something that you do that, can be, that you can be stopped from doing. Or in, or in something that you believe about yourself that, you can, that can be taken away. Your purpose as an image bearer of God gives meaning and purpose to every area of your life. Because in everything that you do, you are able to to live out your purpose as a God's image-bearing representative. And what we say is that that gives meaning and purpose not just to the exciting parts of life or the parts that we feel are important, but it gives meaning and purpose to the parts of life that are mundane, that are boring. And it also gives meaning and purpose to the parts of life that are painful and that hurt and that feel like they, they don't have any meaning. 
because in everything, God invites us to, to live out our purpose and our identity as his image-bearing representatives. And, and, and so we spent the last three or four weeks talking about the implications of those truths. It is, it's like the, it's like the basement-level stuff, really important foundational stuff as we think about what it means for us to follow Jesus and what it means for us to be God's image-bearers. We talked about how, how being image-bearers of God affects how we understand gender and sexuality and marriage, and we saw how being image-bearers of God affects how we view our work and our identity as workers and where we get our purpose from. We, we saw how our identity as image-bearers of God affects how we engage in mission, and that, and that mission and the making of disciples is not just for people who are professional Christians or have some special gift of evangelism, but the, the mission of making more image-bearers is part of the identity of every person everywhere because it's part of who we are as God's image-bearing representatives. And so I don't normally do this, but I would, just, I would really encourage you, if you missed some of the last couple of weeks, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to those, not because they're like the greatest sermons of all time, um, but because I think they are just so foundational to how we understand who we are and how we relate to God, and they just have such far-reaching implications for our lives and for things along those lines. So I'd really encourage you to go listen to those. Uh, you can find those on our website. You can also just from, you know, you can find our podcast in the Apple uh, iTunes store and Google Play or in SoundCloud or all those places. I just really encourage you to do that. So, so what I hope that you have seen so far is that as we, is that our identity and our purpose as God's image-bearing representatives is, is really good news that transforms and informs who we are and how we relate to God in the world that he has made. But sadly, Genesis uh, doesn't end in chapter 2. It doesn't end with, and humanity enjoyed God and lived out their identity in him happily ever after. Unfortunately, it doesn't end that way. It doesn't, it doesn't end with humanity happily ever after. They just enjoyed their identity in, in Christ. They enjoyed their identity in God, and they found their purpose in him. No, what we see this morning is that humanity, in fact, rejects that identity and purpose as God's image bearers, and instead chooses to create an identity and a purpose for themselves. God's perfect world lasts about like 10 or 15 seconds. What we see is Adam and Eve have like the moral, the moral uh, fortitude, the moral concentration of like a two-year-old doing anything other than watching Paw Patrol, right? It, it's just like, oh, spider, right? Oh, shiny thing, right? We're just moving on, right? And the results of Adam and Eve's rejection of their identity as God's image bears is catastrophically huge. You see, you and I deal with the effects of what happens in Genesis chapter 3 every day. Because what we'll see as we study Genesis chapter 3 this morning is, is not just the first sin, what we see is the root of all sin. We don't just see the first sin, we see the root of all sin in Genesis 3 this morning. It is not pretty, it's not good. In fact, it's probably the darkest moment in all of human history. Sin is something we don't really like talking about because it's uncomfortable. But our study in Genesis 3 is something that we cannot afford to miss. We cannot, we cannot overlook what sin is and the root of it and its effects. You see, if we overlook sin, we will... The good news will never be good because there's no bad news. <laughs> this morning is the bad news. It's the bad news about our humanity's rejection of our identity as God's image-bearing representatives. But there is a glimmer of hope, and I'm so excited to show you this morning. So let's pray, and we'll dive into our text. Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for your word. God, we are so grateful that we would get to come and study it this morning. God, thank you that you have, that you have given it to us so that we might know you that we might know who you are and that we might know who we are because of you. 
God, um, we just come this morning, we need you to humble us. We need you to make us, give us soft hearts to hear and respond to you. God, and as I teach, God, what I, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say comes from you and not from me. God, I just, uh, this week's been full for me, and I feel like I have just a, a lot of things running through my mind. God, and so I pray that you, that your words would come through this morning. God, so help us to put ourselves under the authority of your word. God, that your word might inform and transform who we are and how we relate to you. God, and we just confess it like our default mode is not to sit under the authority of your word. Our default mode is to be our own authority. And so, God, we need you to humble us, to make us able to hear and respond to you. God, for our good, most of all, for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we are continuing our study in Genesis. We're in Genesis 3 this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will, cer- you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, uh, Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat the dust dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you would listen to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she was to become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. And he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. As I open this morning, what I said is in Genesis 3, well, we don't, we don't just see the first sin, we see the root of all sin. And as we study this morning, there's four things that I want to show you in the passage that the passage tells us about sin. 
First is the root of sin. Second is the deceptiveness of sin. Third is the effects of sin. And lastly is the covering for sin. So what is the root of sin? What's, what's really going on here? What does the passage tell us? And to understand the significance of Adam and Eve's actions, we've got to go back to chapter 2 for a second here. And in the middle of chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God, God tells the man, he said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so on the surface... The first sin was Adam and Eve's disobedience to God and eating from, the tr- eating from the one tree that God told them not to. But let's just be honest with each other, right? Death seems like a bit of a strong response to eating some fruit, doesn't it? Like it feels like a bit strong. And I would say, it, I think that is a bit strong to just eating some fruit, right? My daughter, she climbs up on the counter and gets some cookies out of the jar. Death! No, like, that would, be a bit, that would be a bit extreme. So there must be something deeper going on here. There must be something deeper. And it is because what's deeper is, is going on is not found in what they did. It's found in why they did it. You see, look at verse 5. A serpent tells Eve, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And in verse 6, says that Eve saw the fruit. She said it, was, it looked good. She thought it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and ate and gave some to her husband, and he ate also. God has provided Adam and Eve with absolutely everything they could possibly need. He has planted this, this lavish garden, and he has made them and placed them in the midst of paradise. Moreover, God had already made them in his image. They were already like him. So why here are Adam and Eve here choosing to eat the only fruit in this entire garden that God has told them not to eat? What is going on here? What is at the root of what is happening here? What's so important that we see is that their intentional and deliberate choice to eat the fruit was a rejection of their identity as God's image bearings. Representatives. You see, instead of embracing their identity and their purpose as God's image-bearing representatives, they choose to take the place of God themselves. See, up until this moment, God's been the one who decided what was good. The whole creation story is God saw and God declared it was good. But now what we see is that Adam and Eve decide to take upon themselves to decide what is good. They decide that they can no longer trust God to act in their best interest. They will be the judge of what is right and what is good. They will be the ones who decide what is pleasing and what is desirable. They will be God. You see, so choosing to eat the fruit, what they're doing is they're rejecting God's rule and God's authority, and they are crowning themselves king and queen. This is the first sin, and this is the root of all sin. You see, the root of all sin is that we want to be God. We want to decide what is true and right and good. We want to be the ones who decide what is pleasing and what is desirable. We want to be the ones who have authority to make those decisions. And what sin is, is sin is insurrection. Sin is mutinous rebellion. 
It is direct opposition to God in every possible way. You see, the reason such a, sin is such a big deal is because at its root, sin is rebellion. Instead of living out the identity we have as God's image-bearing representatives created and sent to reflect Him and to reveal Him to the world, instead we stage a coup against God and we enthrone ourselves as king, as the one who knows best and the one who should decide what is pleasing and good and right. Adam and Eve realized it was a mistake the instant they bit, they bit in. But you need to, this is, we need to see this. Eating the fruit is more than just a simple mistake. It wasn't just an error. It just wasn't just a bad decision. It was all those things. But it was more than that because their choice was rebellion. You see, sin is not just a mistake or a bad decision. Sin is the choice to reject God's authority, to reject the identity that we have been given as his image-bearing representatives, and to enthrone ourselves as king. You see, if you see sin as just a bad decision or an innocent mistake or a bad choice, you will, you will never see how much you need Jesus you will never understand how great a cost the cross was for God, and you will never be motivated to actually live for him. Instead, you'll either just be self-righteously arrogant looking down on others, or you'll be hypocritically focused on the sin of others while minimizing your own because you don't get it. You see, all of us, our sin is not just a bad decision or a mistake. For all of us, it's rebellion. We have said to the king of the universe, I reject your good rule and authority. I enthrone myself. So man and woman, they reject their identity as God's image-bearing representatives, and they choose to play God in seven. Verse 7 says, their eyes were opened. No kidding. Problem was, it wasn't nearly as glorious as the serpent has promised them, was it? Reminds me of this time when Emma was little. She saw me putting steak sauce on my plate, and she just insisted, I must have that. The only problem is that the only thing on her plate was blueberry yogurt. And so I told her, Emma, this is not what you want. This is not going to go well. And she's like, I need this on my plate, right? In fact, it wasn't just on her plate. She wanted it all over. She wanted it all over her blueberry yogurt. And so I let her have it. She took a bite. The face that I got from her was just like absolute disgust. It was like horror. Because vinegar and dairy, those things like, they are, they do not go together. They, that, that is a horrific combination. What she thought she really wanted, what she thought would make her happy, what she thought was pleasing and desirable, she now instantly regretted. You see, making ourselves God, making ourselves the judge of what is good and right it sounds really good. It sounds like it just makes sense. It sounds like it will be the source of freedom that we are so desperately looking for. But as one commentator writes, just like the goldfish that wants to liberate itself from its water will not experience freedom while flopping around on the floor and gasping for breath, nor will we experience freedom by acting as God ourselves. No, the freedom to be a goldfish is only found possible when it stays within the water it was designed for. It's not a prison. It is a paradise. You see, the same is true for us. God's boundaries and his design for our lives, are not, they're not a prison. They are the guides to paradise. The paradise that God has designed 
for us to live in and to know him in and to represent him in light of. But just like Adam and Eve, we think that we know better than God. We're like little kids who insist on steak sauce on their yogurt. God told Adam and Eve what would happen if they ate from the tree. It was very clear. So why do they still choose to do it? Why, why do they still choose? Was it just wild arrogance and proud rebellion? Well, their actions certainly are arrogant and they are rebellious, but what we see is that they don't even realize it at the time. That leads us to the second thing the passage shows us about sin is that sin is deceptive. See, the scheme of sin is lies and deception. The tool it uses is deception. The method by which it lures us in so that we might believe it and pursue it is lies. Verse 1 says that the serpent is more crafty than any other animal. You see, sin lies to us like sin lied to Eve. And it does it like this, subtly at first, and then with greater and greater attacks on the truth. Notice this, verse 1, the serpent says, Did God really say... Did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? Verse 4 says, you're, you're not really going to die if you eat from the tree. That, that's just craziness. That sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Verse 5, God, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep your eyes closed. God doesn't have your best interests at heart. He doesn't really love you. You cannot really trust him. You know, Eve, you would make a much better ruler of your life than God would. Only you know you. You know you best. Don't you think you would make the best decisions? You see, sin lies to us. And the the lies of sin are designed to cause us to doubt, to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt who we are, and and to doubt the goodness of our identity as his image bearers, and to doubt the consequences of rebellion and of rejection of God. What happens is we slowly start to believe those lies, and sometimes we don't even notice it. We say, look again at verse 6, and what? why Eve eats the fruit? She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Those, are, those little things are like some really good things. Of course this is good. Why would God want to keep this from me? It looks delicious. It gives wisdom. Of course God wants me to have this. God wants me to be happy, right? We tell ourselves lies all the time. And slowly by slowly, little by little, we are deceived. You see, the temptations we face are the deceptive lure of sin. It's like the fishing lure that hides the hook. It looks really good. It looks really enticing. But it is a trap. And we think maybe, maybe this time it's real. Maybe this time it will give the life I'm looking for. Maybe this time it will give what it promises to give. But it never does. In his song, Hold Me Jesus, Rich Mullins, an old, really old uh, Christian songwriter, he writes about his battle with the deception of sin. He sings this. He says, surrender doesn't come naturally to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. He says, hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. And in his song, what he's writing about He's talking about the fierce temptation of sin. It's calling him to be consumed. And so often he gives in even though he knows it's a lie. He feels like a leaf in the fall shaking on the end of the branch just hanging on for, just trying to hang on for one more minute. 
You see, the Bible talks about sin in a very similar way. Just next week, we'll see this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. The Bible talks about how sin is like a crouching tiger seeking to destroy you. Sin is crouching at your door. Genesis 4 says it desires to have you. And so with each lie, the weight and the lure of sin increases. And we often feel it like that crouching lion is waiting right outside the door, desiring to pounce on us, to have us. And so we either give in to the belief that sin will give us what, we, what it promises to give, or we just don't know how to resist it anymore. And so what we choose is disobedience. What we choose is rebellion. It's not a little thing. You see, choosing disobedience to God is the dethroning of God as king and of ruler and of creator. It is an overthrow of his kingly rule. It is the crowning of ourselves as the one who is the king of the universe, the one who will decide what is good and right and true, what will really satisfy, what will really give life. You see, all of us have made that choice. All of us have made that choice. It wasn't just Eve. It says Adam who was there with her. He was complicit the whole time. You see, I have made this choice and you have made this choice and Adam and Eve made the first choice. What James 1, 14 and 15 tells us is that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown gives birth to what? Gives birth to death. That leads us to the third thing that the passage shows us about sin. It tells us about the effects of sin. You see, verse nine shows us that sin, verse nineteen shows us that sin leads to death. But the passage doesn't just tell us about the final effects of sin. Sin doesn't just kill us in the end. We see Genesis three that sin painfully destroys our lives throughout. We don't have time to get into all of the effects that we see, of sin that we see in the passage this morning. That would be like a six-hour sermon. Instead, I just want to highlight a few things that I think are really foundationally important as we think about this. Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. The seven verses earlier, at the end of chapter 2, it ended by saying, And they were naked and unashamed. They were living life to the fullest. They were enjoying the creation and the creator. But now they are consumed with guilt and shame. It's like biting into that amazing looking apple and finding a worm. There is just this immediate regret. You see, the feeling, the feeling of guilt that they are feeling right now is the feeling that they have done something wrong. And guilt in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, God actually uses guilt to help us to, to, that we would return to repentance instead of sin so that we would stop continuing to indulge in sin. And so God uses, con, God convicts us. He, he, he reminds us that we are guilty when we sin. So guilt is not a bad thing. It is something that is true. But shame, shame is a very different thing. And this is so important. You see, guilt is the acknowledgement that you have done something wrong. But shame is the belief that you are something Those things are not the same. And there is one that is from the Lord, and there is one that is a direct effect of sin. You see, the feeling of shame is this belief, not just that we have done wrong, but that we are wrong. That there is something just about us that is wicked. It's like this, 
it's just like the dirt and the muck. And you feel like who you are is just despicable. You see, that is not who God says. And that's not what God says. God allows us to see that we are guilty, that we have opposed him, but God does not bring shame. You see shame in verse 7, right? It says that they realized they were naked, and so they sewed coverings. That's shame. You see, guilt and shame are a tag team. They are a dynamic duo. They are Batman and Robin. They are Pippin and MJ. They are Master Chief and Cortana. But instead of working for good, the dynamic duo of, of guilt and shame, they work for evil to, to kill and destroy. And in tandem, guilt and shame, what they do is that they lead to fear. And you see that in verse 10. It says they were afraid of God because they were naked. And this is not the good kind of fear that we talked about when we went through Proverbs this summer. Proverbs tells us that we should fear the Lord. That, that kind of, that's a different word. It's a different thing. This is about being afraid. You see, Adam and Eve, they are afraid because they are exposed. And that's what nakedness is. Nakedness is, they're not just talking about their physical nakedness. What Adam and Eve feel is they feel exposed. That God can see that there's something there that they want to hide. And that's what happens with fear. You see, fear always leads to hiding. And we hide in all different kinds of ways. All hiding, it does not all look the same. It looks different. But fear always leads to hiding. Adam says to God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. So first, Adam, he, he runs, he hides behind the trees, which has just got to be one of the dumbest things in the history of the universe, right? God, I know that you created everything from scratch out of nothing to the trees. Like, that... It's just pretty sad. But it's, it's like when you play hide-and-seek with your kids, and they're like hiding and seeking like behind the curtain, but like their whole bottom half is visible. Like it, you're like, mm, not, not that great of a spot. I still love you, but you've got to work on your skills here, right? But it's not just sad. It's not just, it's not just dumb and foolish. It's sad because instead of running to be with God, as I'm sure that they would have always done, instead of running to be with him, they hide from Instead of running to be with God, they hide from him. Their creator, the one who called them very good, the one who was pleased with them, the one who at the end of Genesis 1 and 2 says of creation, very good. I am pleased with you. You are exactly what I have made. I love you. I love being with you. You, are, you have done everything I have created you to be. Instead of running to him, they run from him. You see, sin has destroyed their relationship with God. Why? Because mutiny changes everything. Rebellion changes everything. You see, they tried to hide physically, and they try to hide spiritually as well, and their physical hiding looks like them running to the trees and sowing fig leaves to cover themselves, but their spiritual hiding looks like them blaming. You see, God asks Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? And we don't, we don't, I can't say this with certainty. We don't know God's tone and posture, but I have a pretty strong feeling that God's tone and posture was not an angry dad. I have a feeling it was a father who was deeply sad. Did, did you eat the tree? Did you eat from the one that I asked you not to? In verse 12, Adam responds. He says, the woman that you put me here with, the woman you gave me, her fault. She gave it to me. 
It's not my fault, God. It's her fault. In fact, and more than that, it's not even her fault. It's your fault, God. You're the one who put her here with me. In verse 13, Eve takes it one step further. Verse 13, Eve blames as well. She says, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate it, and I, and I went, it's not my fault, God. It's your fault. You made the serpent. He tricked me. It's not, it's not on me. You see, one of the ways that, one of the most often ways that we hide is that we blame. We hide by blaming. You see, why do we blame others? Why do we do that? Jeff Vanderstead, I think, just so helpfully, he writes this. He says, what's happening when we blame others for our sin is that we are looking for an atoning sacrifice. We are looking for someone else to die for our sin. But the truth is that there is only one who can remove our sin with their death. And there is only one who did, and his name is Jesus. You see, when you and I look to someone other than Jesus to take the blame for our sin, what we're going to do is destroy the other people. We do this all the time in our friendships and in our marriages. When we sin against each other, we don't first look at ourselves. We seek to blame others. We seek to shift the responsibility. And even when we try to take, sometimes we take partial ownership, but we only do that so we don't feel quite as guilty about blaming and shifting the rest off to someone else. You see, when we try to destroy others thinking it will make us right and we slander and we gossip, well, what we do is we just harbor bitterness in our heart. And it's the fuel, it's the justification for our anger towards others. The reason why we feel just when we are just, just, just incensed with anger towards someone else. You see, this is the internal design that God has put within us that someone should die for our sin. You see, you and I, we rightly feel guilty for our sin and our rebellion. That is good and right, and it is true. The problem is we just know we can't handle it. We know that it is a weight that is far too great for us. And so we just want to dispel it. We want to displace it. We want to get rid of it. We, try to, we just want to get out from under it. We want to find a, a covering to hide us from it. And so we hide behind others. But that will never work. Because hiding behind others will never remove our guilt. No, we need another covering. We need a better covering. That's the last thing the passage shows us about sin. It shows us the only covering that will work for sin. You see, in Christ, what God is saying is point the finger at me. Blame me. I can take it. I will live the life that you should have lived as my image-bearing representatives. And I will die the death that you should have died for rebelling and for rejecting me. I will take the blame. I will take the punishment. I will take your place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this way, It's for our sake that he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what the Bible tells us is that God would not allow us to run from him without a hope for return. Romans 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were his enemies, God reconciled to us, him to us by the death of his son. And so what the gospel says is that you do not have to feel guilty enough. You do not have to beat yourself up enough. You do not have to clean yourself up enough. You do not have to punish yourself enough. You do not have to punish others enough. Your sin is already paid for. Jesus paid for it with his life, all of it. And so through him, the Bible says we have peace. 
Our passage in Genesis 3, it foreshadows all of this in verse 15. This verse is referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent here, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15 is a promise. It's the promise that sin does not win. It's the promise that sin does not have the final word. That sin is not more powerful than God. It's the promise that God wins, that God will crush Satan and sin and death in the person and the work of Christ. And on the cross, what happens is God keeps his promise. You see, God is here just moments into the the destruction of his good creation by sin. And he is promising a coming redemption for all of humanity. A redemption that we now fully see in the person and the work of Jesus. Furthermore, in verse 21, God makes garments for them to cover their shame. You see, their fig leaves, they weren't working. They were terrible clothes. They needed a better covering. But what verse 15 is doing and what verse 21 is a foreshadowing of is the promise that one day God will clothe humanity not with garments made from the skin of animals but with Christ himself. You see, on the cross what we know is that Jesus was crucified and he was crucified naked. And it's Jesus' nakedness that is our covering. You see, Jesus was stripped so that you and I might be covered. Jesus in the gospel is what restores us to Genesis 2 where we can be naked and unashamed. Tim Keller says it this way. He writes, we are naked, we are exposed before God, but the nakedness of Christ is proof that God has looked into our hearts and loved us anyways. And this is what allows you to be naked and unashamed before God, to know that you are a sinner, yet that you are loved. See, this cure, it restores our relationship with God, and it restores our relationship with others. You see, we spend all of our lives, we are either naked and full of shame, or we try to clothe ourselves, but we are never known. You see, the gospel is what restores us to be the ability to be naked, to be known, to be exposed before God, yet to be unashamed. And the gospel is what enables us to be naked, to be exposed before others, to let them see the mess of our lives and the sin and the brokenness that is there, but not to be ashamed. Because the one who has made us right with him has loved us anyways. You see, this covering that God offers is not a mowing over of sin. It is not an out of sight, out of mind. It is a cleansing. It is a complete removal. It is a pure and spotless and blameless righteousness that is imparted to us. It is returned back to the garden, back to Genesis 1, where God delights in his creation. And he says, you are very good. You are exactly what I have made. You are what I long for. You are of what I have created. John 1.1 says that the blood of Jesus, it purifies us from all of our sin. Titus 2 says that our great God, God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Romans 4, 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in God for he has 
clothed me. He's clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. You see, this is the good news of the gospel. Sin says that you should feel ashamed, that you should hide, that you should run, that you should fear. But the gospel says, come out of hiding. You don't have anything to fear. The gospel of Jesus reminds us that we don't have to hide anymore, that we can always come clean, that we confess our sins, and he is faithful to forgive us, that we don't have to fear being found out. See, the gospel reminds us that we are loved and forgiven and accepted and cherished, that we are treasured and enjoyed, that we are pleased with. The gospel cries out to us, come out of hiding. You see, sin says to us, it says, guilty, guilty, guilty. But the gospel cries out in response, covered. The gospel says, forgiven, clean, paid for, restored, righteous. At the end of chapter 3, God sets a, an angel with a flaming sword at the edge of the garden. And what's it there for? It's there to block the path back to life. It's there because of our sin. What we see in the gospel is that Jesus walks through the flaming sword of the cherubim. Jesus walks through the flaming sword of that angel so that the path to life might be restored again for us. So the way that we lay hold of the clothing of Jesus, the way that we lay hold of his righteousness given to us, the path towards that, that we might be, have life open to us again, is through repentance and faith. See, repentance is about rejecting the identities that we make for ourselves. It is about confessing the fact that we have tried to be God and we have rejected his rule and authority. And repentance is, is the acknowledgement and it's the confession that that is evil and wicked, that at, that, that at its root it is mutinous rebellion against God. But it's not just enough to acknowledge our sin. See, the way that we lay hold of the clothing of Jesus, the Bible says over and over and over, is by faith. And so we acknowledge our sin, but we put our faith in the person and the work of Jesus to make us right. See, turning, we turn to Jesus who covers our sin, who both shows us our true identity as God's loved and commissioned image-bearing representatives and who empowers us by his spirit to live out our identity and our purpose in him. You see, this is the best news in all of the universe. This is what we celebrate every time we take communion. That's why we, take com That's why we do communion every week. Because I want to remember that every week. I want to remember those truths all the time. You see, communion, what we're doing is we're remembering and what we are celebrating is that we were naked and we were exposed in our sin, but in Christ we have been clothed with his righteousness, with his right standing before God. And the bread and the drink, they remind us that Jesus' body and his blood, they were broken for us and they were shed for us as he lived the life that we should have lived and as he died the death that we deserved to die so that in our nakedness we might be clothed with his you see, what we're doing when we take communion is that we are proclaiming the gospel and we are reminding ourselves and one another about who God is and who we are because of him. Communion, you just need to hear this. Communion does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. 
The Bible is clear that faith alone in Jesus moves you from being condemned in sin to being righteous in Christ. The only, it's only through him that we can be reconciled to God and to others and to begin to sing that song of creation that, that the creator is singing over it, that he's calling creation to sing back. And so if you have trusted Jesus and if you believe the gospel and if you look to him to be the one who gives you your identity and your purpose and to him to be the one who empowers you to live that out, then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration. Do it as a remembering of who you are and all that Jesus has made you to be because of his person and because of his work. There are two tables in the back. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, we have two tables in the back, one on the left and one on the right. And during our time of worship at the end here, I just invite you, as you feel led, go back and take communion. As you do, do it as a celebration, as a remembrance. Talk with the Lord. Tell him how grateful you are for all that he has done. Tell him that you see your guilt and that you need him. And as you take the bread and as you take the cup, be reminded of his great love for you. Be reminded of his grace which sets you free from guilt and shame. Allows you to live in light of who he has made you to be without guilt and without shame and without fear. You see, some of us are hiding this morning. We hide all different kinds of ways. For some of us, it's blame. For some of us, there, there's just a, there's so many ways that we try to hide. The gospel is inviting you, come out of hiding. You don't have to be afraid. You are guilty, but the gospel in light of the gospel, God invites you to come and be forgiven. That's the good news about the gospel. That's a message that's found nowhere else in all the universe. It's a message that gives life and hope that powers our obedience to Jesus. And without the bad news, there is no good news. And so the bad news is that we have all rejected God. We have all dethroned him and enthroned ourselves. And the good news is that God did not just let us run from him, but that he came running. That he came running after us. You need to see this. Adam and Eve, they hadn't confessed their sin before God promised to make them coverings, before he promised to redeem humanity. They were just stuck in the midst of their guilt and shame. Some of you are stuck there this morning. What you need to hear is that God is not waiting for you to get out of your guilt and shame to come and rescue you. He has come in the midst of it. He holds out a hand of reconciliation to you. Come enjoy him. Lay down the identities that you manufacture for yourselves. Lay it down at the throne of his feet so that he might remind you who you are, who he has made you to be, that he might empower you with life and joy to live out the blessing of the identity that you have in him. God, that is for your good, but more than anything, it is for his glory. When we live for the glory of God, it's the most life-giving thing in all the universe. Let's pray. King Jesus, God, we come before you as sinners. 
God, as those who have by nature and choice rejected our identity as your image-bearing representatives, God, we have chosen instead to play the role of God ourselves. All of us have done it. And so all of us, Jesus, so deeply need you. God, without you, we are naked and we are exposed. And what we need more than anything is to be covered with the nakedness of Jesus. God, we thank you that you do not just let us run without offering us a hope for return. So this morning, as we see, God, the gospel laid out in front of us, God, for those of us who are hiding in guilt and in shame, God, would you call us by your grace to come out of hiding? God, for those of us this morning who have never laid hold of our identity in you, God, we've never recognized that our sin is really rebellion and mutiny against you. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, humble us so that we might be able to receive that, that truth, but also be able to respond and receive the grace that you offer us in the person and the work of Jesus. God, the bad news is really bad, but the good news is immeasurably good. God, cause us to be a people who understand how much we need you, but also how greatly you have met our needs so that our lives are relentlessly given for your glory and your purposes. God, for you have redeemed and made new a people who you should not have. And you have loved us even though we should not have been loved. And so we, got, we come this morning to worship you. God, with our songs, we worship you. God, but with our lives, more importantly, we long to worship you. God, fill us with your spirit so that we may have the power to do that for our good, but for your glory in this age and in every age to come. Amen.